Now, if you wish to ask a question on those four specific topics, uh, there is the option of asking questions through Slido. So you just go on your phone and type in Slido um, and uh, use this code EP19 um, and then ask questions. You can also like questions and I will uh, look at my phone from time to time and try to find um, the most liked questions and ask them to, to Luis. Um, so before the, the the difficult ones. So before giving to Louise, uh, Marine. Um, hello everyone. Oh, is it on? It's on. Yeah, it's on. Um, my name is Marine Khan. I'm one of. It's not on. The mic is not on. Sorry. Oh. Can you say? Should we try again? Is that better? Yes. Great. Now you can hear me. Um, my name is Mehreen Khan. I'm one of five Brussels correspondents who's based uh, at the FT, just around the corner. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome Luis with us. And I was saying that we have a very rarefied audience here today, and I think many of you will be quite familiar with Luis, but those who aren't, he is one of seven members of Team Europe, which is Aldi's liberal group of potential European Commission presidents. Luis, I think, is only one of two men in a, quite a diverse bunch. Uh, he's also uh, a, still a trained and professional economist who's worked at Chicago and the LSE and is still teaching and said that he's going off on Friday to the IE Business School to teach his students. So he's not yet been let off the hook. Um, it's my job, I think, to open the session. And we're going to start with something sort of a little bit broader um, and the future of Europe. And for people who don't know anything about you or Ciudadanos, what is the sort of vision for an economic, the economic vision that you would want to promote as a European Commission president? Well, me, of the honors, or, or the party, rather, in this, in this particular case. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, thanks to all of you for, for, uh, for coming. Um, I've been warned already by Maureen that any three words I say will be a hard-hitting inside the bubble scandal tomorrow in the FT, so I'll be, I'll be <laughs> watching it. Um, the, the, uh, the liberal vision for, for, for Europe and the liberal vision for the world is, is under threat. It's under threat everywhere. Um, these are, uh, in some quarters, bad times to be liberals. The words uh, competition and open trade are under threat. We see a lot of, a lot of uh, people who are trying to undermine those, those, those principles. Uh, my view and other parties' views is that those are the principles on which our prosperity is based, that uh, free trade and open economy is uh, absolutely the, the key foundation stone for progress. But we also understand that there have been mistakes. We'll, we'll cover many of those issues uh, over the next uh, hour, that we have advanced uh, in terms of, uh, we have advanced in terms of of, of implementing uh, free trade agreements, globalization, technological change in ways that have left a lot of people uh, worried and angry. Um, if you actually poll European citizens now, and this is actually across the board in uh, many countries, um, the first words that come when they are going to describe their feelings are not happy and relaxed and comfortable, but they feel anxious and threatened and fearful. Um, and so, that's the reason populism is growing. People are, are fearful. And in some, to some extent, our job is not just to talk about trade and say, oh, trade is great. Uh, there's no convincing people that trade is great if they feel uh, threatened. Um, our job is to ensure that there is a level playing field, that there is a, uh, skills and opportunities for all. 
that we work to, to make sure that the economy doesn't leave any, anybody behind. So that's, I would say, the, the broader philosophy in terms of what's, uh, what, what are the, the main issues on the table, and maybe you, you want to move on to that next or not. Uh, of course, climate and ecology and the green agenda are, are is a big source of, of, mm. of change that we want to embrace and we want to make a core to our vision. But the, there is another issue that I think is essential and that is not sufficiently on the, on, the, on the core of the debate, which is digitalization, artificial intelligence, the digital transformation. Uh, I believe that uh, Europe is badly falling behind in all that. And uh, <coughs> the next five years, we have to put that transformation at the, at the heart of what we're doing. Because it's both in terms of industry, in terms of actually our business, um, we are badly behind. And in terms of our jobs and our skills, there are skill shortages everywhere uh, in digital and artificial intelligence and, and, and all the transformation. So, so I would say those are, I mean, in a very general way, some of the starting points I would take. I think we're going we're to get onto the specifics like trade, digitalization, competition later. But maybe just more on the, on the generalities of the difficulties of being a liberal, particularly in Brussels, where it can mean lots of things to lots of different people. And you will, your own political family also has liberals from across Europe. Is your job as a potential European Commission candidate to reconcile parties like the FTP, who might see themselves as more economically nationalist, the Dutch VVD, who are more sceptical of uh, European plans or, uh, for monetary union or federalization at the Brussels level, how do you position yourself in a group which some people might say is quite intellectually incoherent when it comes to economics? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say uh, the group is incoherent. I think we, we share one important view here, which is um, it's not necessarily about more Europe that the debate is. It's about better Europe. It's about making sure that Europe works for all. We're not going to embrace uh, grand proclamations. We're not going to embrace uh, big words that are, at the end are not solving people's problems. I think, I believe, and I think I believe that politics is about solving problems rather than creating problems. I think that right now uh, we have given uh, several steps in Europe that have left the construction badly incomplete, right? Uh, I think. Um, the, 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 the step between building a single market, which is a mostly technocratic step, and everybody kind of does it in a, in a, in a room, in a dark room, and agrees on the standards for, famously, in, in Boris Johnson's article, for how bananas should look. I don't know if he made that one up or not. And that one is potentially uh, technocratic. But when you move towards what we moved in the 90s, which is immigration, um, fiscal and monetary, policies, monetary union, then suddenly you're really touching the heart of the sovereignty. And, and, and now the, the question is, we need to finish those constructions that are Schengen, asylum, immigration, and that are uh, the euro, etc. that we, talked about, we will talk about later, in a way that works for citizens. What happens mm. is Europe has given those steps forward into things that are much more sensitive to citizens, and then citizens have said, oh, You've done this. I don't want to understand the whole construction, but I feel as a citizen, the citizens tell us, that you've done this in a way that is not necessarily solving problems, but creating them. And, and I think that the way that all of those perspectives are unified is in recognizing that we need to solve those problems. We can't just create problems for our citizens. But, but, but can I sort of 
follow up if, if you were to become the commission president. Um, I mean, what concretely would you do to, uh, to make Europe work for everyone? I mean, you, most of the social policies are national social policies, right? Um, where, I mean, where would you, what would be the angle you would use? I mean, you, you emphasize very much the growth aspect, but you also mentioned the climate issues. I mean, what is, what is really the agenda that you as a commission president can, can act on? I would say um, there are there are tools of the Commission in in all of those and of the and of Europe in all of those in all of those areas. I think the first thing that Europe needs is leadership in setting that agenda. I think Europe has been uh, a little bit bogged down uh, in looking to the future to those two key issues. So there are two key future issues and two present issues I, I mentioned. So the key future issues are digitalization and environment and the two issues that we need to finish up uh, migration and the euro. Um, we've been a little bit bogged down by our inability to solve the first two, the, 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 the current two problems in actually setting an agenda forward. Uh, let me just start with digitalization. I think that... Uh, the digital single market hasn't really the, the digital single market hasn't really been put in place yet, uh, but also I, I think completing the digital single market is is essential. But I also think that the skills agenda needs to be repurposed towards uh, digital skills. So I think there is something that uh, Europe can 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 put forward as as one priority. I think also when we talk about digital single market, the priority has to be research, and I think there is. There is a very good accomplishment of Europe in that. The European Research Council, the European Research Agenda has been, on basic research, extremely successful in, in really putting the money in the good programs, in the good researchers, in an objective way. But when it comes to turning that research into innovation, that next step hasn't really happened, and we are really falling behind. So using successful instances and successful examples as the ERC as the next step forward, I think that that would be ideal in terms of, of digitalization. In terms of solving the two current problems, what is the agenda? We're going to discuss several of those issues. Um, and, and we're focusing more on economics. We'll, we'll talk about the euro. I think that there is uh, more, more likely, uh, as, as you very well know, action by the council that is needed and action by, by other institutions. But I think the commission can be the one that is leading the way forward in setting an agenda that is recognizing the difficulties and the, and the, and the reasons that, that Northern European countries don't trust the construction without stopping where we are. So I think that there is initiative that the Commission has to, has to put, and I don't think it has done enough, and there are actually concrete steps, particularly in the digital agenda that the Commission can, can carry forward. We've had quite a major intervention on this subject, I think maybe last month or maybe in February, which was Emmanuel Macron's uh, 27 language op-ed across Europe. And he is someone that said he would like to sort of have a partnership with Aldi after the elections. How much of what he proposed, and from memory, a lot of it was things like creating new institutions, so some of the grand schemes that you said that you were slightly more skeptical of, how much of that do you think is something you want to take forward? He spoke a lot about climate change, he spoke a lot about digitalization, particularly platforms uh, and dealing with tech companies when it comes to electoral <coughs> integrity and, and issues like this. It, was it a right-headed approach? I, I felt, uh, and I think most other members would feel, quite comfortable overall with that, with that editorial. I, I felt there were very, very few things that, uh, that would, would, would be problematic. Um, he focused on things that are 
that that are where, where consensus is relatively easier to reach. And he focused on concrete institutions to achieve concrete aims. So I would say um, we can go in depth into into some of those schemes if you want. But overall, I would think that uh, everything that Macron said there, I, I'm thinking of maybe one or two exceptions, would be something that 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 I would feel comfortable with indeed. So there is a question here from a person called Bruno or Bruno um, on EU digitization. How should Europe cope with big techs? Most are non-Europeans, so I guess uh, Amazon, Google, and so on. How to avoid that value of European data is extracted by non-EU players? What's your agenda? So, so this is this is a massive <coughs> problem, and let me just give you one statistic that summarizes everything. Of the 20 biggest internet companies, 11 are American and nine are Chinese. Zero are European. Mm -hmm. um, those internet companies are siphoning on, indeed, as Bruno says, uh, as, as the person in the audience says, um, they're siphoning on all the data, and the data is going to be the key input for artificial intelligence. Basically, if you don't have the data, you cannot have the algorithms. Now, what is different about the digital economy is that there are... <coughs> Both, there are very large economies of scale, both on the demand side and on the supply side. Because it's all uh, intangible, basically you can scale up a product in one day. <laughs> you can add a country to Facebook or a country to Uber just with pressing a button. So it means winner take all. And then on the demand side, it's also winner take all because everybody wants to be on the platform where everybody is, where everybody else is. I want to send uh, messages on WhatsApp because that's where everybody's going to be. I want to take my, my cab in Uber because that's where there are more cabs. So that means that the inertia, the lock-in effects in the digital economy is very large. Once you get a dominant platform, once you get a dominant player, it's very likely that they're going to stay that way. And that means that, I mean, so call me as somebody against industrial policy in general, and we'll discuss that later. But that means that the standard tools that we have traditionally used in this arena are not going to work. Um, it means that we cannot just expect uh, competition as usual to do its, work, its job. When you think of cereals, there are three cereal companies that have 30, 25, 20. There are 10 or 15 little ones that have the rest of the market share. When you think of search, when you think of online advertising, you got one or two companies that have 95% share. Two companies have 95% share between the two of them. So my sense is that um, we are going to have, and as liberals particularly, um, you could say painfully, we are going to have to, in this particular arena, and when we talk about other areas, I won't, I won't definitely not uh, defend uh, in any way uh, champions, etc. But in this particular arena, I think we're going to have to have uh, a more proactive, a more proactive policy. Uh, I don't know. Huh? We need European champions. Uh, Liberals saying that. I would say in artificial intelligence and and, and technology, I think Airbus. Uh, Airbus uh, would be a model that we would have to start considering. We should just go and start talking to all the players in Europe that are able to provide a solution here. And I think in this exception, okay, I don't want to be quoted as Aston Siemens is great or something. Well, but we'll come to that in the we'll come. <laughs> But on this particular point, I honestly think anybody who spends five minutes thinking about economies of scale and the supply and demand side, plus data, the key resources that are the oil for the new economy that are increasingly being grabbed 
by these uh, by by companies in this in these two big markets. It's inevitable to conclude that unless you if you give some further step, you're not going to get anywhere. Well, of course, one could could discuss that endlessly, including the question of data regulation, which would yeah. be another avenue to pursue. But but I yes. think we have to move on to to trade. But one yes, data one. regulation. I mean, we have to move to a situation where we are the owners of our own data. Our own data is our own in our own pod, and we can decide to move it around, and not somebody else who just suddenly accumulates all this data. Uh, and, and can decide uh, on, 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 on it as a resource. It's our resource, and okay. that's probably the way that we could break through this. Okay, so let's uh, let's move to uh, to the discussion on on trade, um, and you know we we just want to kick it off by by having a simple chart which shows how important trade is for the European Union. I mean, you see intra-European trade is, of course, even more important than extra-European trade, so the internal market is one of the key issues. But the external dimension, I mean, Europe is a global trading power. I mean, we are um, bigger, uh, or at least as big as, as, as China, and significantly bigger than the US. If you look at um, individual numbers uh, for individual countries, um, uh, of course, the Netherlands is a very open economy. Take, take Germany, um, the the average, uh, the expert per citizen on average, is something above twenty thousand uh, dollars um, uh, per year. Uh, so these are huge uh, stakes um, that, that we have here. I mean, for France, the number is ten or twelve thousand. So we are we are very very open economies, and so so the global trade conflict cannot leave us um, uh, uninterested. And it's and you already mentioned that trade is of course a big issue, and you believe in free trade. So. So I guess my, my first question is, how do you deal as a commission president with the global trade conflict that we are seeing between China and the US with a looming threat of, of the US president against European cars, already a, a, a threat on, on already a tariff on steel? So, so I mean, there is, a, there is already a serious risk that the multilateral trading system uh, collapses within this year. Yeah. Um, and so, so how do you deal? What's, what's your strategy as so, a commission president? So, so I, would, I would separate uh, two, I would do the answer in two parts. I would separate, I would leave China aside for a second. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's leave China aside. Let's look at, at the whole uh, landscape except for China. Um, Europe is a superpower in trade and it's a superpower in defense of the rules-based trading system and it should remain so. And it should throw all its weight around that defense. And when, when, when Juncker went last year and, 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 forced, and forcefully defended that position with Trump, that was, I think, an, a symbolic and an important moment for Europe. And we should all be behind those actions. We are negotiating trading deals all over the place and we should continue to lead in that. Um, that means, in particular, that um, Europe needs to stand very firm on Trump's attempt to split Europe and to split the world uh, trading system and to finish up the rules-based trading system. I would say on that, my position wouldn't be dramatically different from what Europe has been trying to accomplish lately. I would say China is a different story. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I said... Liberals, as me, have to recognize I haven't been in a position of power. I've been in an office uh, at the University of Chicago and at the London School of Economics for all that time. But uh, we have to recognize that we've made a massive mistake with China. Massive mistake. Doesn't mean small mistake. I mean, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, think that we have 
misread the situation dramatically. And the way we've misread it is a bit of a, I would call it a, I don't know, a Fukuyama fault or something. I, I don't know how to call it, but let's call it like that. Uh, we think 1989 comes. At the, on one hand, we have Germany and uh, Berlin Wall falls, and oh wow, the Soviet system falls. There is only one way, which is democracy and, and markets. At the same time, however, Tiananmen happens. And at that point, I think, drawn by our optimism, we think, oh well, you know, China does these terrible things, but as it gets wealthier and trade, open, trade opens, they'll get more democratic, they'll respect workers' rights, they'll get unions, they'll get they with free trade, and they'll get economic rights as well, which means intellectual property protection and all that. Now, we get them into the World Trade Organization on this theory, and we don't learn from the failure of our theory. <laughs> we now have to look at the result. We have a hypothesis. The hypothesis was false. It's falsified. China is not evolving towards a democracy. It's not evolving towards respecting workers' rights and any other rights that are necessary for, for trade. But also, it's not evolving to respecting economic rights, as in intellectual property protection and all of that. Now, um, there is a little shift. Uh, there's been a big shift in the U.S., and there's a little shift in Europe in recognizing this. Uh, you probably, you all probably saw the the BDI uh, document, the German Federation of Industries. Industry, is that the right yes. one? The German Federation of Industries, a document where they say, okay, we need to change how we do in China. They are kind of pushing for some reconsideration, but I mean, I think still there's a, there's there's there is maybe not potentially not forceful enough. Europe needs to change its stance here. I don't think disengagement is the solution and a war with China or anything like that is at all what, what anybody is thinking about that. But we need to understand that this is not a two-way relation. It's been a one-way relation. Um, I teach uh, in, 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 one, in one of my classes, Waha Danone case. Waha is a Danone's big French yogurt company, goes to China, gets a joint venture with Mr. Zong, who has this big brand, which is Waha, teaches them how to do yogurts, teaches them how to do uh, all milk products, and at some point, uh, Waha says, thank you, Danone, now we can do it ourselves, right? And this is not just one case, this is what's happening overall. So I think we need to shift, and I think maybe Trump has made a strategic error in <coughs> picking up fights in trade with everybody. What does he need to fight with Mexico and with Canada and with Europe? Um, and we need to engage Trump and say, look, we understand there is a problem here. Why don't you, instead of trying to solve it bilaterally like they're doing and leave Europe behind, we don't all the uh, like-minded countries on these matters present a united front to China and demand certain changes. Well, but, but, but can I just sort of one, one follow-up on this? I mean, yes, I, it's, um, I, I see many points that you're making, but um, the strategy you're proposing is basically one, let's, let's be in an alliance with the United States against China, uh, which puts us in an awkward place because the United States is in a conflict with China also for geopolitical reasons, which we are probably not. So, uh, so why do you side uh, with the US and why don't you try to, to pursue 
a trade strategy which sort of is in the middle and place of the two. I mean, because at the moment we are still making very good business with China. And by the way, the Chinese market and the Chinese export opportunities are going to be more important than the ones to, uh, to the United States, I even think, with the current system. I think, I think that's a short-sighted short uh, view. The, the, the <coughs> ge geopolitical conflict is correct. I, I agree with you, Gontram. The two cities trap, right? You're all familiar with this idea that, that we have the... The, the, the little uh, power that becomes a superpower and needs to find its space by pushing the other power, and the other power is not going to be able to accommodate it, in this case the US, potentially going towards a conflict. But I think the view that we can ride the Chinese tiger is short-sighted. At the end, the tiger will eat us up. Um, we saw the same exact day the council was talking about China, Italy just peeling off the consensus and making a separate uh, Belt and Road uh, initiative uh, agreement. Um, they are very powerful. They have a lot of resources. And the only way Europe is ever going to be able to demand change in these matters that we're talking about uh, is going to be uh, by standing together with the US. Let me just give one example of, of what is happening, right? So they are in data. They have huge advantage over us, which is exactly the one we're talking about mm. in terms of democracy. Mm. They don't care anything for human rights. So they are going to just accumulate all the data they want. Um, one of my students was explaining me, I was, I was teaching in Hong Kong recently, they, they were explaining me like alarms are connected through <coughs> Internet of Things. They, the government, the Chinese government subsidizing Internet of Things for fire alarms, for cars, for insurance purposes, for the cars, etc. So if you buy a, a 3G modem that costs $5 for your fire alarm. The fire alarm is connected to the central system, so every second it gets pinged, and every second uh, you know if there's a fire in your house. Now, why is the government subsidizing two or three out of the $5 of cost? Well, because they want to have everybody connected to all of the networks, and they want to have the data of everybody. When 10 cars are in the same garage from 10 known dissidents, because the insurance data is connected to the cars, and the cars, sorry, the insurance data is connected, the insurance companies are collecting the position of the cars, the government knows where those cars are. So it's inherently an aggressive stance. And we cannot just see this happening. A country is collecting the data from its citizens um, and is going to use this data to get geopolitical edge. We can't just say, oh, well, we don't like the geopolitics, we don't like human rights, but we like the trade. That stance is completely inconsistent. At the end of the day, the trade, which is the short-run gain, is going to be overwhelmed by the fact that this is a power that doesn't believe in any of the values we fundamentally believe. And if you see the, the, the document from the BDI I was citing, it's funny because it has this fundamental problem at heart, which is, oh, we don't like all these things. Well, you don't, but we think trade is, is important. Well, do you think these things are going to change? Will your job as Commission President be to have to convince a lot of European member states that actually they have to put aside their more material interests to take more account of this? So I think next week in Brussels we will have the EU-China summit, but then we'll also have the 16 plus 1 summit in Dubrovnik. And in some senses, what you're talking about, a divide-and-conquer strategy that China has done, it might already be too late because they are already investing in places, particularly we've had a discussion about 5G networks, but also I think the summit will be in Dubrovnik. There's a huge bridge project which will be unveiled by some member states who have basically thrown in their lot with China. How do you convince those heads of state that, that 
they need to sever these ties, or actually these ties are undermining European unity. I, I agree that, that the amount of resources they can throw around and the fact that some countries, Italy is the notable <coughs> best example, but some of the ones you mentioned, are so stuffed of resources they're willing to throw their lot with, with China for sure for, 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 for those investments um, is, is a problem. And that's why I think that um, U.S. leadership is going to be essential here. It's tragic that the U.S. in this such an important moment is led by, by Donald Trump, uh, but you are going to have to uh, unite all these disparate interests in Europe. Uh, and the only thing that can do it is not just economics, because economics trade around the corner. There is always a gain. It's a very much a prisoner's dilemma situation, where there is always a gain from being the one country which opens the door more. Uh, the only way around that is, in some sense, with, with, with Europe's leadership and with the security uh, with a, with a longer-term security agenda in mind. I mean, I guess as an adjunct or the other side of this coin is the EU-US trade talks and the relationships. And there is one liberal hypothesis from some countries in Northern Europe, um, I'm, I'm excluding Germany, who don't think that the EU should go in uh, offering things to Trump to save essentially an industry, the car industry in Germany, which has failed to keep up with digitalization, which has failed to keep up in a modern free market environment. And that actually it shouldn't be the job of Brussels or Mr. Juncker to go off to Washington and offer blandishment to save uh, a part of European industry that's failed on its own terms. I don't think, I don't think it has failed. I think, uh, as we know, it's Germany. It's, a, it's, it's a making a lot of money. Uh, still making a lot of money. Germany is a superpower in this industry. France is a superpower in this industry. Spain is a superpower in this industry. Um, and I think a lot of jobs and investment in Europe depends on that industry. So I absolutely think that Europe should take this as a, as a, as a big priority. Uh, and over the last couple of days, uh, the, has just passed a package uh, that <coughs> looks for some regulatory uh, mutual recognition and some tariff harmonization with the U.S., uh, trying to use it as a as a um, uh, offer, as a peace offer to Trump, so that he can show that he's getting some progress on this. I would hope that he takes this offer and that we can get uh, we can get this this out of the way. I don't know what was your sense of whether that's uh, that's feasible, but 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 I mean, let me let me push you a little bit more on on this point. I mean, yes, I see it would be nice if the West was working well together, but I mean, in a sense, it's a dream that you put up here. Uh, arguably, the West, um, as as we used to know it, um, as Angela Merkel once put it, uh, we can trust much less than we thought we can trust, and um, there is a real issue here. Uh, about U.S. leadership um, that you sort of seem to push push aside. So, so what 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 if the U.S. is not the benevolent benevolent leader anymore? I mean, what 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 will you, as a Commission president, do? I mean, what's Europe's position then? I I I'm not counting on their benevolence. I'm counting on their long-term interest. Uh, but I agree that even their long-term interest doesn't seem necessarily uh, to be in their minds right now. But just just short-term. Uh, photo op kind of gains. Um, so I would hope that Europe can, uh, united, can, can, can forcefully argue this position with the US. And I do think we have leverage to do that. Um, I see, I mean, the reason I think the US is necessary is because I see the limitations of trying to unite 
uh, on an agenda, a lot of countries that have short -term, a lot of short-term games to do. Um, I would say, first, um, hopefully, nothing lasts forever, including Mr. Trump. Uh, second, so there's an election, we will, and second, hopefully we are going to, to set up a, a compelling offer to him to work together to integrate the West. I, I mean, if I thought the West was over, I would be uh, extremely worried. Uh, I don't think the West is over. I think there's a lot of future for the West as an alliance. Okay, one last question from uh, a person called Richard. Uh, what impact will the increased number of populist MEPs have on EU trade policies, in your view? So, so I think the biggest worry that I have is that the machinery of Europe is so complex, right? It needs so many actors to be playing along, to be playing nicely. And as you add more sand to the machinery in the Commission, in the Parliament, in the Council, are there going to be several key commissioners, or some key commissioners who will be Eurosceptic and who will be trying to also throw sand in the machinery that might? And if all of those pieces have sand in the machinery, at some point the machinery comes to a halt. So I'm not so much worried about um, making decisions that go in opposite directions. It's more that no decision might be made over the next five years if voters uh, entrust the future to people who actually just want to paralyze things. Okay, let's move to the next uh, the next block, which is on uh, divergences in Europe and uh, and the eurozone in particular. If you could put up the map, um, uh, that would be great. Um, so we have a map. Um, which shows, uh, which shows um, well, which should be here. Um, yes, here it is. Uh, which shows um, the growth performance of various regions in, in Europe. And uh, it looks at the extent to which uh, regions have over or underperformed uh, over the last 15 years relative to where they should have been if, if you take a simple convergence model. And what you see here is obviously Greece has done, miser uh, has done miserably, the south of Italy hasn't done well, uh, the south of Spain hasn't done well, uh, significant parts in France outside of Paris have not done well, and of course there's also this island there um, uh, uh, called the United Kingdom, which hasn't, which hasn't done well at all in many regions. You, 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 I thought you were going to see a little island in France, which is pretty striking, right? Exactly. So the Ile de France. The Ile de France uh, is doing pretty well, absolutely. And uh, and the east of Europe, um, if you look at the east of Europe, it's it's doing pretty well um, in in terms of the overall growth numbers. So it's converging faster even than one would expect. Um, however, um, there's studies, for example, from the EBRD also showing that the convergence in the east doesn't go to the bottom 50%. I mean, it's very much in the in the richer parts of society, uh, concentrated in the richer parts of society. So this is the picture that you would inherit as a commission president. Um, and the question is, what do you do about these regional divergences, which are, of course, very pronounced in the Eurozone? What do we do about this in the Eurozone, but also in the EU as a whole? So the, the picture is, 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 a, is, a, is a beauty. Um, it explains, right, it explains a lot. If you could, you wanted to talk about, uh, about Brexit, this photo would be helpful. And if you wanted to talk about, I, I would bet you that, that the red areas are, would this be correct? Red areas in the UK are Brexit voting. Um, there's, Northern Ireland, uh, there's Northern Ireland, which 
is probably anomalously isn't, but Wales was a majority Brexit voting, and we have parts of southern England as well. Yeah. And but strikingly, northwest, northeast of Europe, which did uh, of the UK, which did have quite strong right. Brexit voters, are not, and not so red. Right. That's right. So, so they, it's, it's impossible not, it's to. Not necessarily. to yeah. Okay. So so um, but the Gilets Jaunes stories, uh, southern Italy. So let me let me uh, first address the the the, the, the Eastern Europe. When you are very much behind, convergence happens relatively easily through capital, investment, infrastructure, etc. But I think this is one of the things that economists understand best, growth. Okay, there, there is a lot of discussion of business cycle, and if Gundrum was to ask now, uh, over the next three or four quarters, whether what the ECB says that it goes now down and then we're back to normal is happening or not, economists will have lots of trouble answering that. But growth is something we can understand pretty well, and I think that growth is about two things. It's about institutions and human capital. That's basically it. It's not about resources. It's not about many other things. And if you want to talk about resources, we can talk about Venezuela, the biggest the country with most oil in the world, biggest oil reserves. So what happens with um, institutions and what happens with, with human capital in, in many of these areas. I think what happens, if you look at the part which is red in the south, uh, you see southern Italy, and you see southern Spain, and you see Greece, and you see places that are behind on both of those pretty much. And Europe can do much better. Europe has been setting up a fraud office, anti-fraud office, it has been setting up an anti-corruption office. I think Europe could do much better in helping European countries develop strong institutions. And, and the countries on Eastern Europe don't look red simply because they come from much behind. But once they get to 75 or 78 or 80% of GDP, that extra growth is going to come from the ability to innovate and to invest and to have ideas and appropriate returns from those ideas, etc. That's going to require human capital. It's going to require institutions. So I think Europe can do much better in exporting good institutions. This is something as an Spaniard I have noticed very much. So, so let me just give you one example from my country. So the competition commission in Spain, it's a disaster. Okay, It gives fines. So just let me give you one example. They found one electricity company guilty of pulling out capacity in the moments of high demand to get to the peak of the supply curve and get very high prices for electricity. The, uh, what this company got from this manipulation of the market was 25 million. The competition commission of Spain gave him a fine of 21 million euros. So rob a bank, take 100 million. If I catch you, I'll make you return 90 million of that. I mean, what kind of deterrence is that? So can Europe, could the Competition Commission, could the European institutions be much more forceful hmm. in ensuring that competition authorities in every country are strong, can give good fines, etc., etc.? Yes. Could we, in the same ways as we are, as we are strengthening Article 7 or procedures outside of Article 7 to make sure that people respect the rule of law and human rights, could we make sure that Europe pushes forward on convergence of institutions? Yes. Not only yes, but I think countries to. will want that. We need it, and countries will want it. There are yes. many people, I mean, there is absolutely a majority of people in Spain who would say, Yes, we want those institutions to work. And I give you one example: the Spanish Central Bank, right? The European Central Bank. The Treaty of Maastricht says if you want a monetary union, you need to have these conditions for your central bank. Those conditions were implemented. Central banks everywhere in Europe 
work. Okay, there's been a problem in the, in the Baltics, fine. But it's been even addressed. Okay, so institutions, uh, fine, but what about um, the euro area and the euro area level institutions? I mean, the, the, arguably there are some euro area institutions incomplete. Um, there's a discussion on banking union, there's a discussion on capital markets union, and a person called Anonymous um, is asking the question, you co-authored the original ESPY's paper, um, which is European Safe Asset, a sort of a Eurobond. In 2011. Uh, so we've in 2011, uh, is a common safe asset, um, be it an e-bond or whatever, a, still a key element for you? Yes, you can't have a reserve currency without a safe asset. And you cannot avoid <coughs> flight to liquidity and flight to safety without having an asset that everybody has. If any time there is a crisis, everybody wants to take the money to Germany, that means you will start in the diabolic loop where countries in, in the southern parts of Europe are seeing a risk premia which are unrelated to their own specific problems, but just related to this, a company. I mean, just to put one example, a company in Europe or a bank in, Euro, in, in, in Spain, which is well capitalized, is going to see a problem to the extent that the safe asset is in northern European safe asset. So we need a safe asset. I do think we do. Uh, the ESBIS proposal is an effort which the Commission has taken out and the, the, the treasuries of countries don't very much like. I think the central banks do and the European Central Bank has, has been favorable. The ESRB has been favorable. Uh, it's called in Europe the SBBS, um, right. which is the same name as, as we gave it, but SBS maybe was thought to Glib, I don't know. The idea was let's not necessarily go all the way to have a common tax base and issue a common bond, which is probably one step too far right now. Let's at least do an intermediate step, which is to say, with the current bonds, we're going to have a securitized product where some agency is going to buy the bonds of the different countries and issue a common bond. And all banks are going to have the, the, the reserves, they're going to, instead of having bonds of their own country, they're going to have this common bond. That would achieve multiple things. Um, I know many have been skeptical. I think Bruegel has some, some skepticism. Um, I think it would be one step that would allow Europe to, 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 to move forward without necessarily going all the way towards a fiscal union, which is something that, as you all know, is very controversial. So yes, I would say that would be an element that would add to the stability of the euro by allowing banks to have a common uh, a bond that they can all invest in without forcing countries to have to trust each other as issuers of a common debt. A lot of the eurozone uh, bread and butter is handled uh, with finance ministers here. But as is a potential European Commission president, you will be the fiscal policeman of the eurozone, and you have a rule book called the Stability and Growth Pact, which you will have to uh, implement. One of the biggest criticisms, I think, of of the Juncker political commission is the way that it's handled this rule book. It's become very unwieldy. Nobody really understands how it works. There's always flexibility to be found here, there, and everywhere. Do you think you should rip it up and start again, or are you happy to work on the Commission's legacy of using flexibility where it is intelligent? I am, I am a bit, I'm, I'm talking really personally here. Uh, I am uncomfortable with how the, the, the rule book has been applied. I think the, the way that Europe has been evolving on these issues, on these fiscal issues, has been problematic uh, for legitimacy and, and political reasons. The reason is the following. From the perspective of the northern countries, 
it's always going to be too flexible and the rules are not sufficiently well applied. From the perspective of an Italian voter who is told the reason we can't raise your pension is that Moscovici says so, he opposes it, it's always going to feel like, what? I mean, what do you mean? Who is this Moscovici? Who voted for him? So in this, in this way, we are heading in a direction where we risk the whole European construction. Because we are in a direction where, when we talk about technocracy before, the shape of the banana, um, yes, fine, whatever, the Italians are going to strike over who decided on the shape of a real banana, but they are going to be offended when they are told, no, 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 we can't raise your pensions because of this. Um, we need legitimacy for the whole Euro institutions. We need to come back to an idea where default debt restructuring uh, is possible in some way. Uh, we need to, be, to make this possible. There has to be some market discipline. But I think, as the German-French uh, team of economists suggested, we also need to have a compromise where there is more solidarity. Both things are going to be components of this. We need clearer rules, more transparent rules, and we need a much more democratic way to enforce them. Where we are now is almost the global minimum. I mean, where we are now, in my opinion, it's really a risk. And just give you one example. In Spain, we are having every Friday an electoral bondoggle. Every Friday, the government goes out and announces some massive new expenditure. Now, interestingly, no budget was passed because the government doesn't have a majority. So I, up to this year, we all thought in Spain that if you don't pass a budget, you can't pass any expenditure. I thought that's what the Constitution says. But they didn't pass the budget. They just decided to do it by decree. Now, <coughs> surprise, surprise, Mr. Moscovici is a member of the Socialist Party. And he went to Spain. And he, or actually, Pedro Sánchez was here. I don't remember which of the two. But there was a declaration with two, the two together where he said, we stand shoulder, with, shoulder to shoulder with the Spanish uh, Socialist Party and with Pedro Sánchez, etc. Is this a credible way to enforce the uh, budgetary rules? Is this the way that we think that we're going to have sustainable uh, fiscal policies? I don't think so. Would, would you would you apply the stability and growth pact? It has limits. It, there's I mean, a, there's of a course, you, I mean, every rule that exists has to be applied. The question is whether we are happy with how it's working or we need to work towards reforming it. And I, I think we need to apply it as long as it's there. Uh, but we need to th we need to say it is a very unsatisfactory solution, and I think the French-German position, the French-German economists' suggestions on how to move forward on gaining legitimacy should be a good starting point. Will you call your commission a political commission? I think the commission is a, a very strange animal. Um, that's why it's not called the European government, it's called the European Commission, right? There is a reason governments haven't wanted to call commissioners ministers, but commissions are called commissioners. And, and that means that it has to walk this very fine line because its legitimacy comes from executing the will of the elected uh, representatives and it has to walk a very, very fine line where uh, it doesn't in any way appear to be crossing uh, into the overly political and just walks this um, European interest line. And I think that uh, overall, 
in most matters, mostly, I mean, I think the one that where Europe works best is competition. Uh, competition is a good example where Europe has been able to walk that very fine line and be technically rigorous applying the rules that we have all given ourselves. That, that should have been the ethos with the, with the, with the Stability and Growth Pact. It should that be should a purely been, technocratic exercise. It should have been, the ethos should have been, we give very much, much more legitimacy to all the institutions. We give more legitimacy to the objectives. Uh, parliament debates, we have uh, queries. The Eurogroup doesn't exist, as you all know. The Eurogroup is something that has been created de facto, but it doesn't have legitimacy in terms of of, 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 of an institutional backing. We give all that strong democratic foundation, and then indeed we go to a second step where we are enforcing that, which is left to a much more technocratic. So we needed both more technocratic and more political in some sense. Uh, and now it's kind of in this in-between netherworld where I think it causes uh, very much uh, risk. So, so you said you would implement uh, and enforce rules as long as they exist, um, uh, even if they, uh, they are unpleasant. Uh, so, so what about the macro imbalances procedure, which looks at current account uh, uh, and, and other imbalances? I mean, uh, would you go after Germany um, <laughs> that's with a large I, current account surplus? I, that's, where I was, that's where I was going. I don't think, I mean, Keynes already said that, right? I don't think anybody has found ever a way to go against a country with a huge current account, make them expand. I would tell Germans, though. I would tell Germans. Um, when they develop a very large uh, net foreign investment position, a positive uh, net investment position with respect to the rest of the world, which was mostly in euros in the, in the 2000s, um, they were putting themselves, in the, in the early 2000s, they were putting themselves at risk of expropriation in some sense. It didn't happen because all the institutions make sure that everything was repaid back, even when something maybe shouldn't. But whenever you're running these huge positions against the entire world, you're putting at risk somebody when it comes down to the moment of repaying. Um, you know, you're going to be old in the future and you're investing in, who knows, Venezuela. And you think when I'm old, the Venezuelans will be all the, every year sending me back checks. Well, who knows? Maybe the Venezuelans when they're old say, you know what, we're not paying this back. So, so I you, think you're worried about German savers. I think German savers should, uh, German, the German taxpayer and the German government should um, balance the need <coughs> to save against the need to have a more potentially uh, uh, balanced, uh, <laughs> you're getting me now in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you're very luckily, time's up. Um, you've oh, you've been saved by the clock, so we're going to move on to our last uh, last topic, which is competition, and we're not going to let you get away with it so easily, because you mentioned Siemens Alstom. Yes. What did you think of the Commission's decision? Was it the right one? It has been criticised for being too short-sighted, not taking enough account of the sort of global markets that we mentioned China. Um, what's your position on, on... So I think the biggest triumph of Europe is competition for policy. I think that the fact that state aid is monitored and we don't have what Amazon... Do you remember what Amazon just did in the US? Amazon just pitted 100 cities against each other and asked and told the cities, the city with the biggest... Um, Subsidy for Amazon was going to get the headquarters HQ2, they called it, the second headquarters of Amazon. That's something you couldn't do in Europe because state aid rules would stop it. So the fact that we have those state aid rules 
the fact that we have this merger control, the fact that we have antitrust, the fact that we have rules against abuse of dominant position, it's the jewel in the crown of the European construction. And if anything, what we're seeing worldwide is not too much competition, but too little. Every single segment, this is something that economists have noticed over the last three or four years. They hadn't noticed before. Every single segment of activity in every country, if you want to go now home, read a paper by um, by a team of economists, uh, John Van Rienan, Katz, etc., doing finding all these facts. Um, every segment in every country has seen an increasing concentration, an increasing market power. We are seeing increases in margins everywhere. That means competition is not excessive. Competition is too scarce. We see in retail, think of any sector you want to think about. Retail, think in your country, think banks. I bet you whenever, whichever country you want to think about, not just online advertising, not just uh, industrial uh, cars or something, every segment is getting more concentrated. We need more, not less competition policy. Now, I made an exception to this kind of quote, European champions argument at the start, which is artificial intelligence and the internet economy. And I gave you a rationale for that, which is massive economies of scale on the supply and on the demand side, which means these positions get very entrenched and it's very difficult once a company has all this data, it has this network effect where we are all using it and we use it because everybody else uses it, and it has a scale worldwide, those positions become completely entrenched. And yeah, people say, well, MySpace was also entrenched, yes, sure. I mean, and, and now Facebook could fall. Yes, Facebook could fall. The Roman Empire also fell. Yeah, things eventually die. The question is when. Um, the uh, answer to that has to be different than the general answer I just gave. And the reason is it goes way beyond just competition in a market. It goes into the infrastructure of the next technological revolution. Everything will be artificial intelligence. The, 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 the network of electricity, the networks of highways, every decision will be taken. I mean, everything is making decisions. Everything from diagnosis of doctors to um, production in the factory floor. And those decisions will be made based, made based on artificial intelligence. If Europe is nowhere on that because it doesn't have data, our infrastructure will be dominated by companies which will not necessarily be maximizing profits. They might be doing any other thing. So I would say no in general uh, on, on, on the criticism to the competition policy. Um, and we need even more. And I'm very proud of what Margarete Vestager has been doing. I think she's a fantastic competition commissioner. However, we need to think very carefully about this digital issue. As a commission president, you will come under concerted pressure from the two biggest member states who want to provide the biggest revolution to competition policy that Europe has ever seen. And one of them includes a little bit more political control. So it's sort of sort of pseudo-French idea that there would be a council, the European Council would basically have a veto, essentially, on all competition decisions. You I mentioned that you think it's, it's the most well-functioning and the sort of the most technocratically executed part of the commission. How do you, how are you going to maintain that as being the case? I, I, I mean, I'm extremely uh, fond of, of, of all the ideas of, of, of French President Macron and I've been close to him and to his party always and I would say we agree with them overall uh, on this particular issue. I, I was in the College of Europe in the year 91-92. 
I can tell you the French were already talking about this, political <laughs> control of competition policy. Uh, I think it's good that European, Europe didn't do it then, and I hope that Europe doesn't do it now. Now they have some more vocal supporters in Berlin. Maybe not the entire German establishment, but they have... More, they have. Uh, I can tell you our partners the in the FDP are defenders of competition policy. I am. I consider myself an ordo liberal, a, a liberal in the German tradition, meaning I believe in you need a level playing field, you need a strong cop to, for competition to work. I think the moment you allow states to do quid pro quo, where I let you, this national champion in exchange, yes. you let me have this national champion, the whole European project is going to disappear. I, I don't think we can run Europe without that strong cop, without that or the liberal principle that we have the police in the middle, which is competition, authority, very technical, very well run, that actually we all trust. But, but can I push you a little bit more on this artificial intelligence and internet economy point? I mean, fair enough, we already have big champions, fair enough, there are scale, uh, economies of scale, but can the answer to the big Chinese and the big American uh, firms in that space really be that we create our own big firms, that or shouldn't the answer shouldn't the answer be much more in the in the space of regulation where necessary, yes. perhaps com a stronger competition enforcement vis-a-vis -vis yeah. these companies? So, and so this is the, uh, I mean, you're, so you're, very, you you're very right that uh, Margaret Vestager's uh, strong enforcement of competition rules on these grounds has done more for European. Uh, being able to be competitive in this area than anything the French or the Germans have ever done, right? So it, she's been pushing hard. That's on. a nice line. I think that uh, what she has been doing with Google and with Facebook and all that has been essential to maintain that level playing field. So uh, yes, that competition is a big part, and yes, regulation has to play a big role. I mean, let me be clear here. I mean, Europe is a regulatory superpower. Europe sets the rules for the world. I mean, the data protection rules that Europe passed, uh, that went into, uh, that were put in place, uh, that went into effect last year, have been adopted worldwide because that's the only rule that actually is out there. So, so we can do a lot through rules. And we should use those rules to ensure that citizens have control over their own privacy and their own data. We can do a lot through competition. But I think a consortium, well, we just start thinking about it, okay? I don't want to say like this company and this company and that company, but an Airbus, like, if I were commission president, I would say, okay, we're going to sit on the table, we're going to have a consortium of, uh, we're going to put everybody on the table, and we're going to talk about data, and we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, we're going to talk about skills, governments have a lot to do for, mm. for skills improvement and to eliminate skills shortages, we're going to talk about innovation, R&D. I mean, R&D is like, you know, everybody in Europe talks about R&D, but we're not willing to do anything to make R&D uh, investment increase. Do we think while all these countries are under these SGP rules, they're going to uh, be able to invest more in research and development for the digital economy, or maybe we think that we should relax those rules when it comes down to really massive push on artificial intelligence. Not just, we're not talking about incremental. We really have to be talking about a very 
big step change. On AI, one of the most frequent complaints that I've heard from tech companies outside Europe is that when you when they come to Brussels and they sit in uh, these conferences and forums, the Europeans are obsessed with the ethical elements of AI rather than the innovative or the economic aspects of it. And they think of it as a slightly strange way to come at this topic because AI at the European level doesn't really exist. So why start at the, the sort of the moralistic aspect when really you need to start doing it in the first place? And we also have a question from uh, another anonymous who, who makes the point, says developing AI capabilities requires the use of big data sets. How can the EU with its ethical standards and GDPR compete with the US and China? So, so this, this, this dilemma is, is essential, right? Um, as we said, China's big competitive advantage, and I don't want to be mis misread here because I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, is that they don't care for the citizens, so they're going to exploit all the data and harvest all the data, and the Chinese Communist Party is going to use it up um, strategically, politically, and economically. We can't compete there. I mean, we really can't compete there. Uh, we, we are not going to start ignoring the rights of the citizens for, to privacy. We are not going to start uh, lifting ethics rules or legal rules uh, on data protection. What we can do is <laughs> give our citizens control of their data and allow citizens to move from one platform to the next with all the data uh, as, as, their, as their ownership. This fulfills all these ethics concerns and all these legal concerns of data protection and privacy protection and allows for increasing competition because a new, a new firm could come up and say, hey, citizens, I am willing, I am going to do a new maps. If you put your maps, your, your history of, you moved your history from Google, if you ever have gone, you probably have done the experiment of going to Google and finding out all your history of having been in every location, and Google knows where you were today, three years ago, at this time in the morning. If that was your own data and you could move it, and Google actually says that they are willing to give it to you, actually today they say that, then actually competition and competitiveness could also be enhanced, not just privacy. So there is a point where both things are actually aligned rather than in conflict. Can we be concrete on the point on research and development funding? Um, because you, I think you point out that um, the EU hasn't been very successful in increasing research and development uh, funding. And the big tool that you as a commission president have uh, is not the national budget, it's the EU budget. So let's, let's spend a minute on the EU budget and, and just thinking, t telling us your vision of how you would reshape the EU budget to have a bigger share um, on research and development. Do you want the member states to pay more, or do you want to cut, for example, common agricultural spending or uh, regional cohesion spending? Um, this is the moment where I say thank you and leave. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so the Europe is very backward looking. The budget of the European Union is backward looking. But the risk, the demographic risk of Europe is that as a union, we are backward looking. Our voters are getting older. And every time in every country, and I've been negotiating budgets in Spain um, uh, as a representative of our party, of Ciudadanos, every budget negotiation is like pensions grow so much, that's a given, this is what is left over, and nothing is left over. So, I mean, that's basically the way Europe is working, backward looking, because of the political economy. We need to change that dynamic. We need to change that dynamic when it comes down to investing in the future, when it comes down to investing in skills, when it comes down to investing in digitalization. I think one thing we should allow is for Europe to uh, 
to use the resources of the other institutions that are, that are around that can invest, and for countries to actually be allowed some leeway in these type of investments. The European Commission and the European, uh, in, the next, in the next round of, uh, of budgetary discussions with the countries could say, we're going to make an allowance for, uh, for investment in R&D to be at least partially excluded from the rules. For me, um, I know you would want me to tell you exactly by how much I would cut its, 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 uh, its budgetary expense proposal, and, and I'm, not, I'm not going to do that. But I think that we need to change our priorities so that they're forward-looking. Because Europe is right now at a risk that our demography, our demography becomes our destiny. That because we're growing older and because we're not investing in the future, then the whole virtual circle of the last 70 years goes into reverse. Maybe there's a couple of questions on taxation and we can kind of bring this in because own resources is another element of the EU's budget. Um, one of the biggest hampering, I mean, it's one of the most sensitive policies that the EU gets involved with. Would you scrap the unanimity rule to help the EU's taxation collection powers? I think Macron has uh, put a proposal. Actually, no, it's not a Macron proposal. Originally, I think it's a Bruegel proposal on these clubs. Isn't it a Bruegel proposal? Club? Originally, originally? The idea that it's not the multi-speed Europe, it's not the multiple circles Europe, but the idea that we start, we need to start moving forward in certain things without letting some countries slow you down. This is true for Schengen. So the idea, I mean, Guntram should be the one explaining, but I like the idea, so I'll explain it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so the idea is you get a common infrastructure, which is the parliament, the commission, um, the single market as a principle, like, let's say Europe pre-1995. Everybody signs up to that. Nobody is excluded from any of that. Europe post 1995, which is the uh, Schengen, which is foreign co common foreign security policy to the extent that exists, which is uh, Euro, etc. We're going to have clubs. We already have it with the Euro. Taxes would be a good example. Where countries say, look, we really are serious about this. We don't want some little country here which is not serious about it to be stopping us every day. But we also can't drag this country along on something they, they, they are not willing to move. That's against the democratic rights, etc. So let's move forward on this issue. And taxation is one where France and Germany are actually moving forward on the harmonization of tax bases. Mm -hmm. I think this is not just essential, but even more than essential. How can we have a capital markets union? at all, without harmonizing the tax basis. With companies that say, I mean, I, I, I recently wrote a book which is called The, the, the Liberal Counterattack, and I have a couple of chapters going over some of these examples where a company I won't name has, says in Ireland, the headquarter is not in Ireland because what counts is where the board of directors is, and the US says, no, 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 I think it's not the US because what counts is the legal domicile, and it doesn't pay taxes in any of the two. This tax-based competition is not Liberal is not free market, is not anything that anybody should stand for. At least uh, I don't stand for. That's a very clear word um, at the end of our four blocks, which gives us now time to, uh, to ask, uh, for you to ask questions. Um, uh, please raise your hands, and um, you have a pen. We will collect always three or four uh, questions maximum. So I should write, you mean I should write? Uh, uh, I'm uh, going to hand you, them uh, my if you, you. I, I answer them on No, no you, you, you take notes for the three, oh. if, if you can. Right. So, so we have a, a gentleman there. <laughs> 
Thank you, Adam. Yes, working. Uh, good morning. Jorge Valero with uh, your active and El Economist as well. Couple of questions, one on policy and one on politics. On policy, do you support a big push for the Eurozone budget, not the instrument and the mix, the weird mix that we're discussing today? And um, on politics, the only region that was in red in, in the country that we know best was Andalusia. Uh, do you think that the support that uh, the far-right uh, party box gave to uh, the coalition government of Ciudadanos and PP can undermine your, uh, let's say, push or battle against populism in, in Europe? <coughs> Support for we, we, let's, collect, let's collect three, if you, if you don't mind. So we have a, um, a gentleman here, the second, sorry. Thank you. My name is Eklan. Uh, I, uh, this map you, you Brugger showed on, on the, on the uh, lack of productivity, the lack of, of, uh, of economic convergence, extremely important. And you only answered partially as to solutions. Um, you mentioned institutions, need to improve institutions, and, and human capital. That's right. But EU, my point is that the European Union and, and, and the common market is in, in part responsible, heavily responsible for the, for the, for the plight of these countries. Over 20 years, 25% uh, of the Italian population in the north and in the south uh, uh, lost income of 30 okay. percent, and, and the, the question, the, in short, the, the, the rise of the extreme right is increasing, not just in, in Germany, Alternative for Deutschland, not just in, in Austria, okay. but in, in continuously also in, in Italy. And there is no evidence of this in the programs here of, of that you, you're concerned with this. You're sitting like on Titanic and without thinking that sinking. Thank you. Okay, uh, so, so then there's a third question here in, in the front. Thomas Sarenheimer. Thank you very much. You pointed out that the, the, the union budget is, is, is uh, mainly on legacy and very little on future, which is hard to disagree with. Now, uh, the union budget for the term of the next commission will be basically nailed down in the process of the multi-annual financial framework negotiations that my government is asked to finalize before you take office as the Commission President. So the question is, should we wait? Should we pass this on to Croatia and then to Germany so that your Commission would have the chance to, 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 to have its say on the MFF? Or should we uh, do as we are asked to do and have it finalized before you take office? Thank you. Um, let me start from, do I support an easy budget, a Eurozone budget? I'm here as the other uh, candidate, and uh, I will uh, uh, just uh, take a pass on that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that we should move forward towards uh, fiscal instruments for the Eurozone. I think we can do that without increasing overall resources. And I think there is a, a, a compromise that can be found. I worked on that compromise in the past, and I think a compromise is possible. Uh, I understand the fears of countries on the north about transfers unions, about moral hazard. We also understand very well uh, some of the issues you raised, and I will go to those in a second, about the need to, I mean, basically, to put it very simply, EMU means we give up 
largely monetary union, fiscal, monetary policy, fiscal policy, and banking policy. We've replaced partly or fully monetary policy, and we've replaced banking policy almost fully, except that we haven't even talked about EDs or, or all those things. But anyway, we have partly replaced those tools. We haven't any. We haven't gotten any real fiscal tools, and I think we should move towards those uh, in some way, and I think a compromise can be found. Uh, two questions on convergence and populism, both of them, one on, in, on Andalusia and another one more on Italy, and concern about the race of the extreme right. I am extremely concerned about the, extreme, the race of the extreme right, and I'm, 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 I'm worried if it didn't come across as actually a lot of what I said on trade, on digitalization, etc., is actually saying, look, a lot of what's happening with the race of populism is because we made we committed mistakes, both with the race of China, with the skills and the change, digitalization and automatization. The reason people are afraid is largely because of all these changes. You're saying, well, it also has to do with things that Europe didn't do right. And yes, I agree, both on the euro and on migration, Europe built advance too far, too fast, without actually building this, the, the, the foundations <coughs> properly. So I am, I, am, I am taking that into account, and I agree with you. I mean, I don't know if the Titanic is too strong a meta metaphor, but I agree with you that our project is under threat. And I agree with you that over the next five years, we could see the end of this project. It wouldn't be shocking at the rhythm we are, and Brexit five years ago, would have been seeming fanciful. We have the biggest vulnerability, as you pointed out, the biggest vulnerability of the European project right now is Italy. We have a far-right government or an populist, let me just call it a populist government too, because it has both, both sides. We have a populist government. We have a country which is not growing for two quarters. Europe is entering just, a I mean, at least below. If you saw the ECB downgraded growth projection by 0 0.6 in one go, without touching the projections for Q3 and Q4. So it's like, oh, well, we have some little temporary trouble, but everything will go back. If actually that doesn't happen, and Europe enters a period of really low growth, Italy could enter into a period of recession for a longer run. If that happens, all the bets are off. That's clear. But what would you do as a commission president? I think that was the question. I mean, what would you then do in such a situation? I think his question was more like, hey, are we aware that we are that, that there is really mistakes in Europe that are causing the rise of populism? And my answer was yes, there was. Um, when a country like Italy, uh, which is sovereign and it has uh, a, a right to self-determine as every other country, its own future, chooses for populism and chooses for uh, a... a a, a course of action that is going to cause economic harm to its citizens is very difficult for supranational construction like the European Union to stop that, right? I mean, if you just now want to run there and throw yourself through the, through the window, it's going to be fast for me, hard for me to, to stop it. I would just uh, make clear that the rules are to be followed. I would help with institutions as much as I can. Um, I don't think there's an enormous amount of tools that the Commission has in order to pull uh, a, 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 Italy out beyond the, the things that I already mentioned, which are we need to conclude economic and monetary union. We need to conclude the banking union. That means the banks 
need to be the, 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 the deposit insurance, we need to find a solution for that. We are all the time kind of close to it without finding it. We need to find, we need to give a back, fiscal backstop uh, to, the, to the resolution fund. There's a few things that are crucial that need to be done mm. so that at least when a country is in trouble, it doesn't drag with it its banking sector and everybody else around, uh, like kind of the, the whole dynamic diabolic loop that we have seen in the past. Um, what should you do with the with the budget, and should you finalize it, etc.? Um, I think the democratic uh, legitimacy of the budget requires that it's debated, and that the parliament has a clear role. And there is a new parliament, and I think it should be in the new parliament. That's my position. Can I just push a, uh, one of the questions because it was mentioned and I don't think you answered it. There is a, some trepidation in parts of Brussels about Ciudadanos and the developments back home. And I think one of the questions was that is this, having the tacit support of Vox in Andalusia might be a harbinger of things to come. And I know that, that back home Ciudadanos has sort of automatically ruled out maybe going into coalition with Pedro Sanchez. Uh, there seems to be a, a strong nationalist streak in the party which puts its natural allies, those on the right. Does that tarnish your credibility as a liberal or someone in Brussels who's pushing a pro-European stance here? But at home, the dynamics seem to be very different. I, I did an event yesterday with Albert Rivera and with uh, Soraya Rodriguez. Soraya Rodriguez was the speaker. You can see it in the web. She was speaker for Alfredo Rubalcaba, the previous leader of the Socialist Party, and she was an MEP. She's joined Ciudadanos, and she's going to be in my list for the European Parliament. Uh, a completely strong, totally straightforward pro-European agenda with no ifs, no buts. We are the most pro-European uh, party. Uh, we have been uh, at the forefront of that, and we'll continue to be, and there is no ambiguity in any of that, uh, in any of our pronouncements. And I challenge you to find any ambiguity in that. We are liberal. We are progressive. We believe in the fight against climate, we, climate change. We believe in human rights in all ways. We believe in a stronger Europe. We believe in uh, Article uh, 7 procedures being strengthened. Um, I can't see any daylight against, between any of our views and the liberal progressive views that I represent as a member of the other party. So no, the answer is not at all. Okay, let's let's collect a few more questions. We have, uh, and we do need to get some some ladies. So I, I, I will I will uh, the lady here in the back. Sorry, in the I mean in the middle. Can here? Yes. Thank you. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about including the compliance? With the Paris Agreement in tra in all trade agreements, you know there is a France proposal, and I think there is not a lot of success in, at the European level. So, what do you think? I, I think no, no. Please collect the questions. We 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 want to collect three questions. Ma Maria, sorry, sorry. sorry. So Paris in trade what agreements. Trade? Yeah, uh, Maria, Maria. from uh, Bruegel. I just want to go back to this issue of China, and if you can have a little bit more on, on your thoughts on China. You were very clear on your disagreements with China and the way that China does the business model, if I may call it this way. You were also very clear on, on, on the need to unite uh, in an approach, if I may say, against China, with uh, united between us, but united with the U.S. 
China is 1.4 billion people. Uh, it's, it's, it seems to me that it's not going to be a rule taker, a strict rule taker. It's going to be a rule maker at some point. So what does that mean about the future of global interactions? Are we going to have to conform the way that we do things? Think about the WTO, for example, the reforming of that. Can we really continue on our own rules when you're having such a big player coming in? Or does that necessarily mean that we are going to see a world that is going backwards in terms of rules engagement? So, so then uh, the gentleman here. Antonio from the Spanish Sperm Rep. Um, anxious, threatened, fearful. Those were the words you said. Um, now, it seems like the battle lines have been drawn for May 26, Luis. Uh, as an economist and a Spitzen candidate, uh, how do you fight emotions? Logic? Facts? Are you not at, at a disadvantage to begin with? No, I, I just want to, to uh, expand on the, the question on climate change because I mean, climate will be a major issue for the next commission um, and we don't have a functional climate policy. I mean, we have an ETS that really doesn't deliver. We don't have common taxation, the common price of carbon. We have a, a high degree of divergence. So we're left with some regulatory tools and with a sort of diplomatic pronouncement that we, we go to conferences and we commit to something on which we actually deliver more than other continents, but still not much. So what would be your strategy? And there are two climate ones, so I think that that uh, that allows one and four are Paris and trade and climate change, so they both go very much in the same direction. So um, the 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 Paris and trade, the, the last uh, Nobel Prize winner on his speech uh, in economics was talking about a few uh, William Nothouse was talking about a few suggestions here that I think we should take into account. And one of the things he was saying is, look, uh, you have again a prisoner's dilemma type situation where everybody wants everybody else to be taking action against climate change. And how do you push people who don't want to take action to not be the free riders on the system? And the solution is the one you were intimating and Macron is pushing forward, which is, look, um, we are going to incur these extra costs from the emission trading system and from the carbon prices. We're going to incur these extra costs, and these costs are the ones that you have to incur, and if you're not incurring these costs, we're going to, you're going to have to pay them on the border. So my answer is yes. Uh, we need that. If not, the whole, the whole climate policy is going to lose all political backing here because people are going to say, oh, we are disadvantaged against these other people, and it's going to be have a huge hole in which com companies simply need to move to another place which doesn't have those standards. So my answer would be yes, and that would be one of my answers. Um, to, to Jean Pisani Ferry as well. Um, now, the ETS system is, is not working. It needs reforming. I agree with that. Uh, co 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 common taxation, etc. I feel that this is something where the next five years are going to make a big difference. I think that the change that we have observed recently is that climate has gone from something that was nice to add at the end of every sentence and people would just not to something that actually now has political traction. And I think that 
almost every party has strong commitments in this way in their, in their manifestos, and I think there will be less divergent and more regulatory change. There is something we have learned from the Gilets Jaunes, um, and we have learned from what happened in France, right? So, so the, the climate policy in France is, 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 has been weakened by these, 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 uh, these protests over the last few, over the last many weeks by now. And the reason is not that people don't want to fight cl climate change. The reason is that people feel it's always the same ones who are paying for that. And again, here, we have things that we can do better. Uh, we can commit to using all the revenues from uh, taxation, uh, uh, climate tax, uh, climate taxes, uh, carbon taxation, etc. We can commit to giving them back. And I think there are solutions that people are starting to articulate where we can get the political support for these changes by, at the same time, taxing these emissions and giving everybody an, a, a share in that taxation scheme working. In fact, giving them all the revenues back. Uh, that would be progressive because people would get, uh, people who are, uh, who are poorer would get a, a larger share of their income, of, 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 of money back relative to their income. Um, so, so agreed with the diagnosis, and I, I am pretty hopeful about this particular aspect. I will be less hopeful about the other aspect that you're raising, which is China. Um, so China has a business model which I argued is incompatible with our business model. Not just different, but incompatible. In data, in state aid, uh, everything that is going to allow them to succeed in artificial intelligence and in the next generation of technologies. And as Marin said very well, uh, there are incentives for every country to 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 be uh, to be the one who is making life easier for for Chinese investment and Chinese technology. And if you go forward and you say on top of that, the economy dwarfs by a lot the European economy. That's what I, I said. I think that um, we are going to need uh, to be working together with the U.S. and to be working together with essentially the whole developed world. We maybe need to consider, and I don't want to like be too uh, revolutionary, but we maybe need to consider a WTO 2.0, the idea of clubs. Uh, the idea of clubs maybe needs to use for trade. And people who are willing to sign to these principles, intellectual property protection and worker rights, will be in this WTO 2.0. Something like this would be something that would give the right incentives to China. Right now, they're already in, so they don't really have much incentives. And that's why I said we made a massive mistake. Because when, when China went in, we had this crazy theory to which I have subscribed, so I have to acknowledge that I am part of this intellectual consensus that, oh, well, you get richer, your middle class would put a lot of pressure, and suddenly you will get all democratic and will have good good practices. That has just not happened. That's the truth. And we have to, the sooner we recognize that, and the sooner we'll get to new solutions. Third, emotions. Um, yes, um, we are fighting a really uphill battle against people who use these negative emotions, um, these negative values, anti-values, um, to stir up trouble uh, anxiety, fear, etc., and to and to make people fearful. We are uh, all failing 
finding ways and failing to, to counter this. It's really very hard. If you talk about them, if you talk about populists, it's trouble because you make them important. If you don't talk about them, then it looks like, oh, you're ignoring the elephant in the room. So what, what is the right way? What is the right way against it? I think we need to use emotions as well. I think European, the European construction, the people in this room, you are the Brussels bubble, uh, I'm afraid, uh, officially. Uh, the people in this room and the people in Brussels have developed a language and have developed a way to talk. You see my briefing notes, what people tell me that I should be talking about. The acronyms, the words that they use and everything, I just had to throw them all away, right? Because it's just insane. I mean, I can't be talking and, and, and being speaking this kind of language because everybody will be looking at me and thinking this guy is an extraterrestrial. Uh, <laughs> only here people would say, oh, yeah, yeah, the MFF, oh, yeah, I know, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not the way people talk out there. Um, we need to learn this language. And in way learning this language is unlearning, unlearning this language. And learning the language that we are used to talking in Brussels and learning the language that people talk out there and talking about their problems and talking about how we're going to solve their problems. And emotions, uh, emotions about Europe. I mean, there has never been a most emo more emotional moment, a more beautiful moment than the demonstration in London just a couple of, how many days ago? A few days ago, pro-Europe, right? Now, does it have to happen that in order to unleash all these positive emotions, the country has to be on the brink of exiting without the deal of the European Union? Hopefully not. But we need to be able to master these positive emotions. We need Erasmus has been the best thing we've done. Uh, we need many more Erasmuses, many more ways to show people that Europe is there. And maybe in all this eurocratic discussion we've had for the last, uh, for the last time, talking about very specific technical uh, issues, we have actually left this part, and it's good that you raise it, of how do we make Europe not just be a concept and not just be a remote thing that, that exists in Brussels, but something that people touch every day. And, and I think the big example here is Erasmus. It's a small program. It doesn't cost a lot of money. And it's a massive mm. impact on everybody's welfare, on everybody's feeling about Europe, on everybody's perception of what Europe is. And if we can do that with professional education, we can do that with with uh, older people, if we can do that all across the board. Um, one thing that we have in our program, and I want to be pushing, and this is the first time I mention it, is an Erasmus for older people. So in Spain, we have this thing, which is called Inserso Traveling, and this is the way it works. Every Spaniard is laughing. So you have, you have all this tourist infrastructure, which is empty in February, right? So the hoteliers offer this infrastructure, uh, at a low price for people over a certain age, uh, people over 67 or 65 or something. So my mother will travel to Alicante in February for peanuts for a very low price and get a hotel which will be empty otherwise. We're going to put in our program um, uh, this idea, which is Incesso for Older People or Erasmus for Older People, where older people can travel all over Europe Hopefully, they come to Spain. I may want to go to Germany. Uh, that's a, a fiscal transfer without telling you. <laughs> that's will, okay. They will be happy that they can go somewhere nice, but Spaniards might go to Austria or they might go somewhere else. These are the kind of programs that we need to put. They are not going to cost a fortune. Citizens are going to enjoy them. They're going to, you could have millions of European senior citizens traveling all over the place. They would be happier. The hoteliers would be happy because they have the infrastructure full in the winter. And it's actually fantastic for the European idea. So there is. Um, okay. 
uh, an idea. So, I think thank you so much, Luis uh, Garicano, for uh, sharing. It's been great. Thank you.